All right, so Psalm 5 is before us this morning. I've called this in the past a declaration of dependence. Um, in fact, you might remember I was scheduled to preach on July 4th down at Christ Church, and that was when we got locked out of the rec center because it was a holiday and none of the city officials showed up. Um, but I want to take a little bit of a different approach to it this morning. So we'll look at Psalm 5. Let me read it for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. So ends the reading of God's holy word. As we come before it, let me once again pray for us. Our God and Father, we ask that you would fulfill the promise that you have made, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty. May that be true here this morning and for all who may hear this word in the future. May it go out and be successful in the things for which you send it and accomplish those things for which you have purposed it. For us, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear the things that you would have us learn this morning. In so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Again, Father, all of these things we ask in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Last week I used... uh, an illustration that was a, a little unusual, I think, and, and uh, surprising. Talked about an army. Imagine an army that never attacks, but only defends itself. Absorbs all the attacks of the enemy. The pounding, the, the cannons, or the bombs, or whatever the shells that are sent over does what it has to to defend itself, but never attacks. And the way it fights the battle 
is to send out emissaries, to send out ambassadors, as it were, out to infiltrate the army, the attacking army, and talk them into joining our side. Come and be bombarded with us. Come and be attacked with us. Come and suffer with us. And I argued that this is the way the church fights our spiritual warfare. We love our enemies. We're called to do good to those who hate us, to pray for them, to bless those who curse us. If they strike us, to turn the other cheek. If they take our cloak, to give them our tunic as well. And many other examples from Scripture. How do we fight? We get them to change sides. We get them to join our side. The only offensive weapon described in the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word that reveals sin and calls sinners to repentance and faith and gives a new life that never ends. We are an army that conquers by conversion, not by conquest. Sounds crazy, very unconventional. No teacher in any war college is going to teach that method of of fighting. Not only is it crazy, not only is it unconventional, but it's very, very risky because there's something else that I didn't talk about, but which is tied to our psalm this morning. What makes it risky? Well, you send out emissaries or ambassadors to join the other side. They might switch sides themselves. It's tempting. Life is better on the attacking side. They're, doing the, they're inflicting the harm. They're inflicting the damage. They're not being beat upon and dumped upon. Life is better, easier when you're not under attack all the time. And those who stay behind as defenders, sometimes it's easier just to run and hide or to sneak out and desert or just not do your job out of fear or to undermine the defenses from within. In other words, even for those who are converted from rebels to loyal servants, there's temptation. Temptation to sin, which is rebellion against God. And so the spiritual battle we fight is not just external against external enemies who would attack us. It's internal. We fight against ourselves and our own sin. That sin nature that remains in this life, the struggle that we wage war against, to our great frustration. Paul's words in Romans 7 are so apt and so fitting. I don't do the things I know that I should. And I do the very things I know that I shouldn't. He's waging war against himself, and we do the same thing if we have any sensitivity to our own sin. What I want to see in Psalm 5 this morning is that this psalm is the cry of a warrior engaged in that battle. And an acknowledgement of how we need help from God against all of our enemies. 
foreign and domestic, external and internal. And the only way to victory is by taking refuge in God. Looking back to Psalm 2, taking refuge in Him and kissing the Son enthroned on Zion, God's holy hill. So all I want to do is work through the psalm this morning and note some lessons along the way. Pretty simple approach. Let me talk about the psalm real briefly. We see in the heading that it's a psalm of David. And you can see in the, in the content of the psalm as well that it's a morning prayer. This is a psalm that David is offering up to God in the morning. He's facing the day and he's going before God to plead with him as the day approaches. There are five parts to the psalm, and I want to take each of those in turn. First section of the psalm is verses 1 to 3. David expresses his utter dependence of, uh, upon God as he approaches God in prayer. And he does it with some very powerful and poignant words. You'll see in the first three verses, Give ear to my words, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. In the morning you hear my voice. To you do I pray. There's outward words, cries, but there's also the inward groaning, the sighing, it says in some translations, the, the just sheer agony of the inner soul, crying out to God. Spurgeon notes of this psalm that utterance is of no avail without heart. Speaking empty words to God means nothing. But he also says, fervent longings and silent desires are accepted even when unexpressed. Isn't that a comfort? There are times when I have no clue what to say. My heart is bursting. My brain is all frazzled. You don't know what's going on or how to respond to it. <coughs> Excuse me. David acknowledges this here. Consider my groaning, Lord. Pay attention. My heart is breaking. My mind's a mess. This is a great comfort. For the Lord does know our needs. Now, that he knows our needs without our saying anything is not an excuse to not pray. <laughs> that is not the way to understand this. But we can understand that sometimes our prayers transcend words. We read Romans 8 last week, or part of it. And in that passage in verse 26... We're told that the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes that applies to us as well. Our groanings are just too deep for words. The Lord hears. and David is begging God to hear him. He's speaking to his covenant Lord. We see that word often put in small capital letters in your printed Bible twice in these verses. This is the covenant relationship that David is claiming. You are my God. I am one of your people. I am in relationship with you. 
I'm claiming that relationship now. You are my king. You are my God. So this isn't just some distant God somewhere that we hope might appear. It's that God that is personal to us, that is ours, and we are his. When does he pray? He prays in the morning, at the start of the day. And I think this is really, I think this is cool. Because now David can watch the whole rest of the day for how God is going to answer his prayer. Lay all my concerns before God in the morning and then just kind of sit back and watch how God answers prayer. Be expectant, be watchful for God's work in our lives. And we don't always do that. We kind of go about our business and, and do things, get busy and caught up in them. But how great it is to lay those concerns before God at the beginning of the day and then see how he answers. There's an urgency in David's prayer as well, but expectant urgency. God will hear. God is going to give attention. And so we see David's life as a life of prayer, expectant prayer, dependent upon his covenant Lord. A model for all those who are fighting spiritual battles without and within. Can't fight them on your own. Too often we try to do that. Or too often we just fall into that habit. I can do this. I can get through it. I can make it happen. And we forget that God is there to give us strength and comfort and guidance through that. Do we look to God as often, as continually as we should? Don't fight those battles by yourself. It'll wear you out. Fight them with God. And in the end, Let him fight them for you. The next section of the psalm is verses 4 to 6. An interesting trio of verses where uh, David describes God backwards by saying negative things. Gives negative examples to show us God's holiness, his righteousness, his wrath, and his justice. This is the kind of God that David is crying out to, the kind of God that he's dependent upon. He's not a God who delights in wickedness. But what does that mean? He is a God who delights in goodness. Evil may not dwell with you. Righteousness will dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Well, who does? The humble, the contrite in heart. You hate all evildoers. Just as an aside, that's not very popular in our day, is it? We're supposed to be nice to everybody. (laughs) And yet we're called to hate sin and evil with God. He loves those who do good. You destroy those who speak speak lies. Therefore, he upholds, does not destroy those who speak truth abhors the bloodthirsty, the deceitful man, those who would murder, those who would lie. But he loves those who preserve life and those who speak truth. 
God is a God who hates sin. And we know He's a God who will not let sin go unpunished. And David knows this. There's some difference of opinion about whose sin David is talking about here. It could be his enemies, and many commentators focus on this as being uh, a description of David's enemies, but I think given that we have a section devoted to David's enemies in verses 8 to 10, I think here David is talking about his own sin. David knows his own heart. He knows his own wickedness. He knows his own boasting. He knows his own lying tongue. And in many ways, he is a bloodthirsty man. David is a man of violence, a man of war. He's not allowed to build God's temple because of that. David knows his own heart. And he's acknowledging, in a sense, that it would be foolish of him to anger the God who cares for and provides for him. Not unlike Paul in our New Testament reading. Be foolish to sin, to try to show God's holiness. Well, this leads to verses 7 and 8. And here we have David's real petition, his real request in the heart of this psalm. God hates sin, but at the same time, he loves his people. There is an abundance of his steadfast love, that Hebrew word chesed that talks about that covenant love that God has for his people, that loving kindness, that unshakable, unchanging love that he has for his people. David knows he has that abundant covenant love. And so he can enter God's house bowing down towards his holy temple in fear, in reverent fear and awe of God. And in that fear, in that reverent fear, in that submission to God, David makes his request. Again, the heart of the psalm. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. 4 to 6 reveal David knows the dangers of his own heart. Verse 8 tells us he knows the cure. He needs to be led by the Lord in righteousness. Led down the straight, righteous path. He's dependent on God for the kind of righteous living that shows true reverence and worship and awe of God. We have this idea of David, this image of David bowing down. I've talked before about how bow down and serve are sometimes translated as worship in our Old Testament English translations. That idea of a life lived before God in humble submission to Him. I bow down before you. Lead me. Because without you, I don't know where to go. Without you, I'm the man of verses 4 to 6. Subject to your hate, your wrath.
And so this is the solution for us as well. If we know our sin, if we have any contemplation, any idea, any understanding of our sin and its depth, we have to do what David does. Turn in fear and reverence to God. Lead me in righteousness. Have you done that? If not, do it now. Now is the time. There's also a public aspect of David's dependence on God. He's not doing this privately in a little prayer closet that he's built and tucked away in the depths of his house. He's going openly to God's house, publicly confessing his sin, publicly bowing down before him, publicly making his requests known to God. That's a model again for us. For one thing, public worship isn't optional. But when we come, we always have to come acknowledging God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His wrath, His goodness, His abundant love. Confessing our sin, but looking with faith and trust and hope to that abundant, steadfast love. It's not a miser miserly, meager love. It's an abundant love. Paul will say in Ephesians, you have loved us with a great love and been rich in mercy toward us. Look to that abundant love and ask to be led in righteousness. Well, verse 8 mentions them, and then verses 9 and 10 talks more about David's enemies. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Those enemies that oppress him, those who sin. There is an echo of verses 4 to 6. Sin is sin, after all. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Think of the bloodthirsty and deceitful man of verse 6. Their throat is an open grave, yet they flatter with their tongue. The throat an open grave, what a powerful picture that is. What's an open grave in the Old Testament? It's a place of pollution. There's pollution coming out of their throats and everything they speak. That flattery that they speak is poisonous. Their sin, therefore, in reality, is not against David, but against God himself. It's rebellion against God. And David acknowledges this at the end of verse 10. They have rebelled against you, O Lord God. So in the end, David is dependent upon God to take vengeance against his enemies. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. This is David, the guy who counted foreskins when he went out to kill Philistines. (laughs) The man who had slain his ten thousands, saying the women as he came back to town. You, God, defeat them. You, God, take care of them. 
David is dependent upon God again in the end to deal with his enemies, his own sins, those who would rise up against him. Make them bear their guilt. Let them fall. Let them be cast out. Again, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. Those two people are engaged in spiritual warfare. The wicked in rebellion against God. And we know from Psalms 1 and 2 that he will punish them if they do not kiss the Son. And it's right for us to ask God to do that. Not for our sake, not for our vengeance, but for his glory. And we need to remember that we are former rebels. (laughs) And as former rebels, we wage war against our own remaining sin nature. David knows this. Prays for God to lead him on a different path, the path of obedience and righteousness, so that he won't sin against God. Prays that God will deal with his enemies. He's utterly dependent on God for both himself and for those who would do him harm. And so are we. We cannot achieve victory by our own strength. I've heard this talked about in Christian circles for years. I can't get victory in this area of life. I can't get victory over sin. And the person struggles with, what should I do? What should I do differently? Have you tried just surrendering and stopping and trusting God and depending upon Him? We're not completely passive. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we've talked about that. But work it out, because God is at work in you, to will and to do, says Paul. Lead me in your paths of righteousness. That's the way that I'll go. That's where victory comes, from God, and through following Him. Following God and being dependent upon God, letting God repay, letting God deal with sin, internal and external, is a description of those who are taking refuge in God. And so David ends this psalm by considering those kinds of people. Those who do take refuge in God rejoice. They sing for joy. They exult in God, and they are blessed. Think about that as as being able to lay claim to certain rights. We like to talk about rights in our country, but I think we talk about the wrong ones far too often. Those who take refuge in God, who love His name, who let him spread his protection over them and cover them with his favor, can lay claim to the right to rejoice and sing with joy and exult in God. They have the right to his protection, the right to be covered with his favor as with a shield. Ultimately, our dependence is nothing more or less than faith and trust in God. Believing and trusting in Him and the Savior that He has given us, Christ Jesus, His Son. Looking to Him 
in faith, that gift given to us, Jew and Gentile. And so we're shielded from our enemies, and we're shielded from our own sin and its consequences. Psalm 5 lays claim to the favor of God, favor that comes to those who are covered in the righteousness of Christ because our sins have been placed on Him and His righteousness clothes us by grace through faith. Verses 11 and 12 are a celebration of that. But there's also an implicit warning in there and an implicit call not unlike the call and warning of Psalm 2, which is very explicit. The warning and the call to the rebels who deserve God's punishment, take refuge in God instead. Let Him spread His protection over you. That might seem a crazy thing to say to people who are defending themselves against enemies all around them but it's a sure and certain promise in the end. This psalm that begins with a plea, a heartfelt cry, anguish even, ends then with praise, rejoicing and singing for joy, exulting in God, counting the blessings that we have from our Lord. Hear me, says David. Give ear to my cry. Give attention to the things I have to say to you, but it closes with rejoicing and exulting. Looking to the the Lord God who blesses the righteousness and whose favor is all that they need, all the protection that they need. David opens this psalm with a heartfelt plea for God to hear his prayer, but ends with a confident expectation that God has heard his prayer and will protect him, and will watch over him. So again, the rest of the day is just an opportunity to see this happen. How is God going to do this? That's a great model for us and how we can live. Confidently in God, looking to see how he protects us day by day from our own sin, from our own enemies how He has loved you, how He has covered you with His favor as a shield. Now, that doesn't mean you won't sin, (laughs) because we all do. But I think it will mean that as you sin, you'll be more aware of that sin, realize it, recognize it, repent of it, and have just another opportunity to again rejoice and sing and exult in the covering of Christ's righteousness that protects us and the consequences of our own sin. Another example, another example, another time, another opportunity to praise God for the salvation that is ours in Christ by grace and through faith and not by works. It also doesn't mean you won't experience opposition or or trials or difficulty from external enemies. Jesus promises these things. You will have trials. You will have persecution. Do not fear. I have overcome the world. When enemies arise, when enemies attack, it's just another opportunity to remember, to recognize, to 
rejoice in the truth that our Lord's Son sits enthroned and a day is coming when He will punish His enemies and ours. We are that, we are that crazy army sitting there taking all the attacks of the enemy, willing to be slaughtered like sheep because He was slaughtered but knowing that we will rise to eternal life because He has risen. That's the attitude with which we fight the battle. Crazy as it may look to those around us, crazy as that offer might sound to come and be part of it, but knowing something that they don't know, we might be struck down, but we will live forever confident, dependent upon God, who will win the victory through Christ, His Son, and through whom we have His favor. Have you taken refuge in the Lord? If you have, (laughs) rejoice, sing, give praise to God. You have His favor. It covers you as a shield. Let's pray. Our Father and our covenant, Lord, you are our God, we are your people. Your ways are confusion to those around us, an offense, a stumbling block. But we know that in Christ we stand secure. Though all the troubles of the world assail us, though we struggle with remaining sin, we know that Christ has won the victory and He has won it for us. We look forward to the day of consummation when that will be made true and sure and certain for all of eternity. Until that day, we are dependent, utterly dependent upon you. Your strength, your power, your wisdom, your leading us in the right paths. And you're covering us with a shield. We will talk in coming weeks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But indeed, we have no reason to fear evil, for you are with us. It is that in which we put our hope and trust, not in the outcomes of of this world and its topsy-turvy ups and downs, but in you, our rock and our redeemer, who does not change, in whom there is no shadow of turning, the rock upon which we can build a house that will withstand all the buffeting of wind and wave that might come upon it. Do not let us be led astray by our own sin. Do not let us be troubled by the works of our enemies. But let us be confident in you. We cannot do this in our own strength. We ask again for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us, to teach us, to mold us into the image of Christ, our Savior. 
We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.